Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songa on the Viewpoint. Songa indeed, and I'm joined now by political analyst and expert on African governance issues, Mr. Gideon Chitanga. We are having a conversation as to the relationship between governance in the African continent and the relationship between the military, the government and the civilians and democracy and the strength of it, generally speaking, on the continent with a particular focus on South Africa. Good evening, Mr. Gideon Chitanga. How are you? Hello. Unfortunately, Mr. Chitanga is cut off, but basically with the South African government now poised to end its term, or this administration certainly poised to end its term in a matter of two to three weeks from now, and the sixth general election taking place, we basically want to probe the question of not necessarily comparing South Africa's elections to the rest of the continent, but what makes South Africa's elections, certainly the last five general elections, the only ones we've had in this country in its entire history, we've only had five general elections in this country, nothing before 1994, and we are sitting pretty in terms of hosting or staging the sixth general election. Hopefully the IEC will declare them free and fair. But this hasn't always been the case on the African continent, and we want Mr. Gideon Chitanga to tell us more about why that hasn't been the case. What is the issue that plagues the majority of African countries as it pertains to elections and governance in general? Hello, Gideon? Yes, uh, hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you got the gist of my question, but I just want you to comment on African governance as it pertains to handling state elections, national elections. Why does Africa yeah. seem to be poised to go down the same path year after year when an election is held in some of these free states and independent states, really? I think there are, there are, um, are two major trends that we can identify. One is that uh, it's just so difficult for the people in power, the whom we call the incumbents, to leave, leave power. So each time there's an election, they would uh, go uh, to their best uh, bags of tricks in terms of um, trying to manipulate the process so that they retain power. Uh, so the sense of our elections is a process which should allow the alternation or change of leadership in a peaceful way is not yet um, respected uh, universally in the continent as an important value. And I think that uh, basically this comes from the disrespect to the idea of human dignity and just the failure to respect citizens' choices as arbitrators in terms of policy issues and how their countries can be governed. And so elections become uh, or are treated like basically a kind of war where someone is to be defeated or to die or to lose blood and so that another dominant force can then retain power and continue to govern. But uh, this is this is at, an, at the level of ideas. But in a practical sense, it's because elections in Africa are about means of survival and a primitive accumulation in most of the countries, and that's a major problem. Dos Santos in Angola, Nkurunziza in Burundi, Mugabe in Zimbabwe, Bongo in Gabon, Kagame in Rwanda, 
Blaise Kampaura in Burkina Faso, Lauren Kabila mm. in the DRC, Paul Bia in Cameroon, and I can go on. No, no, no. Why, why is this a problem in Africa? I mean, obviously I understand why they would resist change because they've probably amassed wealth, which is in consonance with the term of office and their salary, at least officially. I mean, mm. so much money was recently seized in the compound of the recently ousted Sudanese leader, Omar al-Bashir. Mm. But we can't blame this, can we? we? We can't blame this on apartheid. We can't blame this on colonization. This we, is just we a certainly uniquely African cannot issue. blame this, this trend on, um, on colonization. Surely there are, there are certain uh, values in terms of the political culture that are drawn from the nature and character of our colonial domination. And you see that uh, these leaders, some of uh, whom you have mentioned, they actually uh, take their draw, a lot of their tactics from their uh, from the colonial uh, book of strategies uh, in terms of dealing with opponents and political repression and so on. But they basically just exercise their agents and build their own supportive networks. And some of these networks are international uh, actors, by the way. Uh, they are very powerful countries, some of which even are known to, uh, in the public to, seek to, to portray a picture that they support democracy. They become part of um, a network of alliances which support uh, a political kind of stretch uh, that allows these key power brokers to stay in power like for a whole uh, life or a whole generation. And unfortunately, these same countries, they suffer a lot in terms of governance. They suffer a lot in terms of uh, economic opportunity and economic prospects. And clearly, the main beneficiaries are the Al-Bashars uh, who are able to accumulate uh, such millions of U.S. dollars and denying citizens public resources, which are rightfully theirs. All right. Hold that thought, please. We are in conversation with Mr. Gideon Chitanga, who's a political analyst and expert on African governance issues. We have to take a quick ad break, but we'll be back so soon thereafter. Pick up some speed. Pick it up, babe. I said, how badly do you want this? And then you pedal. <sighs> come, come. Be careful. Be careful, love. That's it. I do notice that Danny does care a lot for Siva, but I also know that Danny does have feelings for somebody else as well. Compared to the other two couples, how do you feel your relationship is? Real. The Longest Date, Mondays at 7.30pm, only on SABC3. The clock is ticking towards the finish line and the going gets tough in the Premier League. That should seal the points for Liverpool who will go back to the top of the Premier League tonight. Every match is crucial regardless of current position. Reality kicks in as others face relegation. The bottom teams continue to fight for their survival. Those in the middle aim for the highest possible finish. Meanwhile, the top six teams duke it out for that elusive Champions League spot. It is the survival of the fittest. The race is on for title contenders, Liverpool and Manchester City. It is going down to the wire. It's Sané through a crowd of players. Jubilant reaction from Pep Guardiola. One ball of relief. And the finish line is on an uphill. It is the final stretch. Catch the Premier League action on SABC3 every Saturday at 3.30pm. Brought to you by SABC Sport. For the love of the game. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10pm. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhe Zomapete on The Viewpoint. 
That's right. My name is Songa Zomabet, and I'm in conversation with Gideon Chitanga, political analyst. He's a political economist specializing in conflict and security research, regionalism with particular interest in regional institutions in Africa, including policy research on youth and politics in Africa at large. He's worked in Ghana, Kenya, the Netherlands. He's basically somebody who can tell us a lot about what it is that we are talking about, and he holds a master's in development studies at the Institute of Social Sciences in the Netherlands. Gideon, thank you so much for taking... I mean, thank you so much for being our guest, and we're taking your calls, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, mm, what's that number? I keep forgetting it. Oh eight nine one one zero four two zero seven. I beg your pardon for that. And we're receiving WhatsApp voice notes on oh six one four one zero four one zero seven. Gideon, the relationship between the military of a respective nation and those who are in authority, and I think the most gruesome relationship was best expressed with Fatah al Sisi in Egypt, and he's a military man, and there's just recently been a constitutional referendum that could see him stay in power until 2030. Of course, it's good for as long as the military are looked after, because if that's not the case, as what happened with Zimbabwe, as what happened with Omar al-Bashir, things change very quickly. And South Africa, apparently, mm. nearly flirted with that sometime in Feb last year when the incumbent refused to obey an instruction that he had once given. Tell us about the relationship between military authorities and executive authority, and when things go sour, what we tend to see. So, so in theory, um, and I think it differs with what happens in in, in a very practical sense. And uh, there is also an element of uh, the culture of politics in different countries. In the case of uh, most uh, Arab countries, they have. Um, and Egypt, in, in particular, has evolved a political system where I think uh, military dominance seems to be the major stabilizing factor because of the context and the many contradictions, um, domestic contradictions with that country, especially what comes or what is presented as the threat of uh, extremist Islamism. And because of that, you find that uh, democracy is... Um, subordinated to political stability and the international community is keen to have a kind of a strong uh, uh, defining element of leadership which identifies with uh, the character of the military. Uh, I think which should be a different case in other other settings where democracy had seemed to, to flourish, particularly post the 90s. And this idea of um, the dividing line between the dividing line of authority between the terrain of the military, which is basically seen as a, a domain of force, military force that is, and in some instances, cohesive military force being strictly defined in the context of um, law, order, and sometimes maintaining the sovereignty of a particular country. So in that sense, the military, it is an anomaly to allow the military to then play a part or a direct part in party politics because what they know best and what they are trained to do and what a lot of constitutions seek to define and protect is a space where the political, which means political institutions and political actors who are civilian in nature, can contest in terms on the basis of their ideas and policies, and then people can choose um, which side they prefer. 
the, the risk of military force and the challenge of military institutions, as we are increasingly seeing in Africa, they are increasingly being drawn to the subordinate executive, civilian executive political authority. So they use military force, they use the power of occupying a coercive space, the power of having guns, which they can use at any time to say to the broader society, this is where uh, the political direction of the country should go. And when they do that, they basically impose themselves on the, in spite and despite of whatever other sectors of the population might choose, and that's very undemocratic. But also there is a risk because these institutions, the military institutions and police, sometimes in the intelligence institutions get also involved. When they use such force, they might actually just decide to be serious power brokers, determining who comes, in, uh, who occupies office, who goes at what time, and so on. And meanwhile, this creates structures of governance which are very bad for accountability, which are opaque, which are not transparent, and uh, in some cases, they might end up with serious conflict. Oh, for sure. Let's talk about what I had intimated towards, and which was, for a while in South Africa, it was a rumor that developed some legs. Whether or not those legs were credible or not is something else. But with the executive change in Feb last year, there was mm-hmm. this rumor circulating that President Zuma had approached the military to assist mm. him remain in his position. Has your work come across that sort of information? If so, what information can you share with us? I think it was both speculated and reported in some quarters. But um, what is important about South Africa, it is uh, the ability of its democracy to self-correct. So this um, supposed idea or alleged idea, I guess it did not uh, see light simply because there isn't such interest, there isn't such appetite in this country to, to, uh, to support such an initiative. And if it had happened, I think it would have totally ruined not only South Africa, but the image of the continent. But what I, what I observe about South Africa, I think it is one of the most dynamic democracies, even by world standards. Its ability to self-correct, especially post the Jacob Zuma president, it's, it's such a positive factor, which if um, South Africans and Africans do not really celebrate and uh, study in a positive way, in a manner which allows them to further contribute to the positive aspect as in enabling the democracy to further consolidate, it will be unfortunate. So what this is a, country that is, it's a country that is currently dealing with its own record of debilitating corruption through its own institution without any donor support or Western support. It's not common in a lot of countries. So, so one thing that other citizens from other countries in Africa and other African governments can learn in South Africa is from South Africa is that democracy can work for sure. And where institutions, where countervailing institutions are properly constituted, they can provide for opportunities for citizens in civil society to hold government accountable and also to help remove uh, leaders whose policies are not favorable. All right. Gideon, 
Let me just ask this question, and before I say that, I just need to remind the callers, we've got about 10 to 12 minutes with Gideon Chitango, who's a political analyst and an expert on African governance issues. If you have anything that you want to express or share as you're listening to this conversation, please do give us a call on 0891-104-207. Otherwise, if you don't really feel like talking, drop us a WhatsApp, 0614-104-107. Gideon, you mentioned the fact that South Africa is good at self-correcting, and I think for most parts I agree with you if one just looks at the commissions of inquiries with which we are seized. I agree with that to a point. I mean, look, we haven't had a prosecution of a high-ranking official, be it in the public sector or the private sector, for quite a while now. And I think if my memory is correct, it dates back to the former police commissioner, Jackie Selebi. This is now in excess of 10 years ago. But nonetheless, we're good at self-correcting. That's your posit. But why do we get to a position whereby the institutions can be so threatened, so compromised, the... Mm separation of power lines be so blurred for most parts. The executive has been, I mean, the the judiciary has been very insulated and only because of great leadership, not to say there wasn't an assault or an attempted Mm. assault on the part of the judiciary. But how can we have these institutions, particularly your Chapter 9 institutions, be so threatened or be so weakened? I say this because we had a conversation last week with former Constitutional Court Justice Albie Sachs praising Mm -hmm. this constitution with it having the DNA of an Oliver Tambo, an ANC man. And it is Mm -hmm. this ANC that has presided over this constitutional project, this democratic project. And it is the same party that saw what you refer to as the Zuma years. How did this come about? Never mind the correction. How did we even get to a point where we needed to make such dramatic corrections? Yeah. So my, my sense of uh, how President Zuma came in power, I think he came in power as such a huge popular figure he, who uh, almost, he, he, and in the context of his tenure, he, for a moment created a kind of, uh, or was in the process of building what we describe as personalist kind of regime. This is a kind of a, of a political regime that is built around a very dominant political persona. So he dominated the ANC, and he was on his way to dominate the, the government. So the only difference with other uh, countries and other regimes elsewhere is that where other regimes were able to uh, eventually dominate the uh, institutions of government, dominate a uh, civil society, and indeed the citizens, for South Africa, at least it, the country was able to rely on its uh, institutions to then go to the point of correcting uh, what, it, um, what was almost uh, what almost nearly took South Africa on the famous part of other countries. Uh, the second thing is politicians are human beings and they are individuals, and they get to into power with different kind of motivations. Uh, sometimes they are well-meaning, but once they are in power, uh, all kinds of trappings you know, come in, and they also have to deal with um, a lot of ulterior motives from a lot of domestic and international uh, actors. So the integrity of an individual leader and his vision for the country and for the party as a political institution is leading, becomes a key issue. Let's talk about the integrity of persons. Okay, sorry, the second issue? Sorry, sorry, carry on. Second issue? Yeah, sorry. So, so, so all these uh, temptations, they come with uh, uh, different agents and structures which prop up 
certain leaders who satisfy some of these interests. And I think that um, the convergence of the Zuma era with the Guptas and all other cases of corruptions that we, we, we are familiar with now is a key example of how uh, political leaders in Africa, if they don't take themselves seriously, are at a huge risk of being corrupted. So they can be, you know, of a, a, a weaker disposition in terms of material needs and interests, and then they are manipulated as well. In the news that, recently... That, that is also a serious trait to democracy in many African countries. Yes, let's talk about it. I mean, in the news recently, just to drive this point home in terms of ethical leadership, for the first mm-hmm. time in a decade, former President Thabo Mbeki could support the party that for 52 years he had served until his mm-hmm. resignation in 2008. For the first yeah. time since, he has been able to endorse his party. And some of the things that he referred to in the news clip recently played was and is in, sort of encapsulated in the sentiment that the veterans of the movement are basically looking at the candidates list of members of the ANC who the mm. ANC by expression in that candidate list is sending to parliament and mm. any one of those persons could be our president, our deputy president, our minister of foreign affairs, presiding over state resources. Some of these names there have been seriously implicated in serious mm. transgressions over the last 10 years. Talk about self-correcting, but at the same time, repeating the cycle that's going to get us to a position whereby we will have to again self-correct we mm. you talk about moving the the general direction of failed african states these are the hallmarks of that as you see in south mm. africa gideon Hello. it seems we have lost gideon i beg your pardon for that got, gideon did you get the essence and thesis of my contribution that i want you to respond to Yes, yeah, no? I think I think I got uh, the bigger part of uh, what you said. Sure. Uh, you know, I've I've reflected a bit, uh, and quite often we have had discussion about the the list uh, for the list of parliamentary candidates for the agency, and the question that uh, some of the key candidates there, uh, who happen to be senior members of the ANC, by the way, uh, are involved in some dodgy uh, deals in corruption, their images are tainted. My, my view of, uh, of uh, what is going on is really, uh, let me call it a very realist kind of view. I'm looking at what is a new leader of the ANC can uh, possibly President Ramaphosa do in the short term, right? I guess that the process of um, transformation should allow the ANC uh, to navigate the changes that uh, it seeks to drive in a very cohesive way. So very cautious of the threat of internally destabilizing uh, the party and government. And we have already mentioned that the government has a lot, it attracts a lot of interest, and it's not only the president, all the key individuals who are involved in there. So sometimes it becomes a huge challenge to just kick out these people and replace them with, with new people. Sometimes you want to give people chances to, to rehabilitate because we are human, we are flawed in certain instances, but it does not mean that, uh, well, if whatever we do is not, he, he has not been proven in the court of law to be a criminal act, then um, I think due process must be applied. 
and then uh, those who are convicted right of clear crimes, then they surely should not be allowed to stand. But I think uh, there are uh, proper institutions and regulations to deal with this internal process. And I, I mean, I would really be disappointed if the ANC just allowed everyone else to hang on, uh, become part of the parliamentary process, go to parliament and it's over. So in short, I'm saying, let's give this uh, new government a, a chance, the Ramaphosa regime a chance, and let's see how they are going to deal with the complex issues which they have in their hands in terms of uh, the self-correcting process that I, I referred to. But so far, I am convinced that the trajectory, the road that the country is taking is quite promising. It's, it's South Africa is a, it's a very small democracy and dealing with the serious challenges coming from the previous regime. And there is a clear threat if you look at the previous ANC Congress that... Um, uh, some of the key power brokers, very powerful individuals connected to very key uh, interests uh, are still part of the ANC and will probably be part of the government. So the extent to which those who are committed to reform can maneuver and should maneuver is actually determined by a lot of factors. And as far as I'm concerned, presently, they are doing the best they can. All right. Hold that thought. We've got a voice call from somebody in Pretoria, and his name is Sheriff. Sheriff, how are you? I'm good, sir, and how are you doing? Excellent. Your contributions, please, to this very vexing topic about Africa and governance. Yes, uh, just a, a brief question to to the um, your guest there. Eh? I just want to pick on his brains in terms of uh, what is he thinking about the the military contribution to the economy, or the military um, leadership taking over government, uh, bearing in mind uh, the Botswana, until recently, it was a military person in charge. The Egyptian, uh, El-Assisi, is the military in charge. And the economy is relatively flourishing. Is he having an issue if it's military people in charge, or is he not having an issue there? Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Short and sweet, Sheriff Gideon, your answer. So uh, I think that uh, President Kama only became president after retiring from the military. Uh, Our Sisi, I think it was um, uh, quite a very controversial process. He probably just took off the uniform and in a very short period moved into office. That's I'm exactly just dramatizing the, the difference That's exactly in the two processes. In practice, and what I would prefer is that, so every, let's start by saying every individual has a right to contest for public office, including people who are in the military. But for people who are in the military, only and if they resign and they don't drag the military institution into party politics. So any member, any member who is serving in the military, if they are interested in becoming a public servant or in political office. My take is, and I think that is what constitutions of law, a lot of uh, countries say, you retire, you go to a political party and you contest for office. If you have voted in, that's fine. If there's an insinuation in the question that um, uh, former military member potentially performs better, as was the case with... Uh, um, President Kama and 
surely Egypt's economic prospects, I think, by and large, they are positive. I'm not sure whether this is this has to do with um, their military background more than just leaders who have a clear vision of where they, are, they want to take their countries. The, some of the most uh, celebrated leaders in Africa are, are civilians. President Becky, I admire him a lot. A visionary he, he, of international stature, not only on Af- not only African stature. He he was not a, a military man. He, Robert Mugabe, he, at his prime, quite a great leader. In spite of what happened to him later, he although he led a, a, a guerrilla movement in Zanzibar, but he was not trained. He was not a military man. And there are so many others he, he, we can talk about. I think that if we're interested in democracy. We should draw a very clear line between the where cohesive institutions can uh, be drawn into political party contestation, the, as opposed to retaining their domain and their pride in protecting the country using their, the legitimate force that they are required to use constitutionally to defend countries yeah. and yeah. not to abuse that force to dominate civilians and other institutions. Excellent. I think that's a great point for which we will have to now end. But nonetheless, thanks so much for your contributions, Gideon Chitanga, political analyst and expert on African governance issues. We've been in conversation with many great people, and one of them is still in studio looking at me with a BDI. That is Dr. Mahadevis Bongseni Totsejana. Thank you so much, nonetheless, to Gideon Chitanga, my latest guest, as well as Terence Corrigan, project manager at the Institute of Race Relations, together with Michael Gastro, a research specialist in education and skills development. I think, in a nutshell, this is what the last conversation was all about. In 63 BC, Caesar was elected to the position of Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest of the Roman state religion, which came with an official residence at Via Sacra. In 62 BC, Pompeia hosted the festival of Bonadea, good goddess, which no man was permitted to attend. Of course, Pompeia is the wife to Caesar. However, a young patrician named Publius Claudius Pulcher managed to gain admittance, disguised as a woman, apparently for the purpose of seducing Pompeia. He was caught and prosecuted for sacrilege. Caesar gave no evidence against Claudius at his trial, and he was acquitted. Nonetheless, Caesar divorced Pompeia, saying that, My wife ought not even be under suspicion. If that was the thesis that carried in the people who are sent to Parliament, South Africa would very much be on the right course. That's the show for tonight, folks. We're going out to the paper right after this.